Hey, everybody, we have a great show for you today. I am going to interview Aaron Wright. He is from Open Law, a company which is rebranding to be called Tribute Labs. Long and short, he is the smartest individual in the DAO space. He set up a dozen of these DAOs. They're all crushing it. If you don't know what a DAO is, it's a decentralized autonomous organization. It's a fancy way of saying a collective of people in a chat room who make financial decisions according to a smart contract and voting based on their ownership. Anyway, it's a brave new world, kind of like LLCs, but programmable. It's all the rage in crypto. And I actually think that this is one of the great use cases for crypto. And so we're starting to see now, hey, my skepticism of the ICOs and Bitcoin and some of this stuff is now starting to when we get to the application layer starting to make sense to me. But before that, speaking of disconnected from reality, Rivian has IPO it's worth $100 billion. I'm going to do a lot of math on this. They've only delivered like 150 cars, and they delivered them to their employees. This is a bit crazy. It's totally disconnected from reality. I'm going to take the whole thing apart piece by piece. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Dell for entrepreneurs wants you to stay connected to your business no matter where you are. Go to launch.co slash Dell to take advantage of Dell Technologies Black Friday sneak peek sale. Save over 45% on some of Dell's latest products and unlock exclusive discounts. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist. And Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. EV startup Rivian started trading on Wednesday and the stock has popped 60% and peaked at over a one hundred billion dollar valuation uh they of course have no revenue so <laughs> as of midday thursday uh the stock settled at around 117 dollars a share that represents around 100 billion dollar market cap in other words it's worth what airbnb uber and other companies that have tens of billions of dollars in revenue is worth and those are obviously much better businesses <laughs> The company has made zero revenue uh, as of their S1 from October 1st. Their projected best case scenario for Q3 is a million in revenue. Uh, obviously, quarter three and September 30th, uh, for those of you who are not familiar. And as of September 30th, Rivian reported 48,000 pre-orders for both the R1T and the R1S. This is their pickup truck, which is um, pretty good looking. Uh, I think it looks essentially like a pickup truck with a nice set of lights, um, not really much different than a, a pickup truck you might see from Ford, uh, to be totally honest. And I think that was their design choice was to just say, hey, this is really easy for somebody who owns a Ford 150. Of course, since they announced Ford announced that they're doing an electric 150. So I think uh, that's going to be a big problem for Rivian, to be totally honest, because Ford can lose money on the 150. I, I don't think Ford is as far behind today as it was when Tesla came out over a decade ago. So let's put that on the side for a second. Uh, these customers paid a cancelable and fully refundable deposit of $1,000. So they have $48 million in deposits. Uh, remember Jason's law, I tell you about this all the time. If a company has a billion dollar valuation before they have revenue or a product in market, it's either a fraud or it's going to fail. Um, 
this has been true almost universally. Uh, we saw it with Nicola. We might be seeing it with Magic Leap unknown uh, if Magic Leap's ever going to get to profitability or products in market. Uh, when's the last time anybody used a Magic Leap product? Uh, Theranos falls into this category. Nicola Quibi. Quibi, uh, which, you know, wasn't a terrible product, but wasn't a great product either. And uh, I give them credit for trying, but it did command a huge valuation. So I always get worried when the valuation gets too high compared with the performance. And that's uh, coming for me as an investor in private companies, you would think I'd be like, yeah, let it rip. You know, it's good for me if these things rip. Why wouldn't I as an investor want to see valuations disconnect from reality? Well, because I don't think it's sustainable. I would like there to be a sustainable environment for startups and for high tech companies, a company with no delivered vehicles becoming worth $100 billion is absolutely insane. Now, this might be a case where Jason's law does not actually wind up applying, it could wind up not being a fraud, and it could wind up being successful. I think Nicola Fisker, and some of these other electric vehicle startups are nowhere near where Rivian is based on what I can see. It has an estimated range of 314 miles. It starts at 67k. But I don't think that's the actual price. Um, I think it winds up being closer to, you know, 90 or 100. Uh, as of September 30th, 2021, we produced 12 R1Ts and delivered 11. Now, all of these vehicles seem to be have delivered to their employees. In other words, it sounds like they're bespoke handcrafted uh, vehicles. This is what Tesla called the founder series, uh, or, you know, basically prototypes. So uh, by October 31st, we produced 180 R1Ts and delivered 156. So that's 145 delivered in October, I guess they timed this to be when they were delivering their products quoting uh, Rivian, nearly all of these vehicles were delivered to Rivian employees, and we expect to ramp deliveries to third party consumers, as we increase our production rate. That's a big red flag. Um, it's not uncommon to give the first ones to employees. Obviously, the employees are not going to rip it to shreds. Um, and the founder series at Tesla did go out to the early investors. I had a founder series of Model 3. Obviously, people famously know I have signature 001 of uh, the Model S. And uh, that's a collectible uh, that I think I'm going to maybe donate to the Smithsonian or something. I, mean, if it's, I don't know if there's a place where I can donate this million dollar car so I can get it out of my garage and they could maybe insure it and put it on display if there's a car if there, if I, and listen the, the folks at rally road i got to get back to them they were very nice they wanted to auction off the signature one and my roadster 16 i haven't done that but i would like to put them in a museum somewhere if somebody wanted to if there uh, is there a great museum that takes these cars and you know we'll take custodianship of them and i don't know if i want to give it to them yet or donate it but i would like to just have it on display somewhere like two of the first It'd be kind of cool so uh, here's a tweet from a Rivian employee, uh, Travis Munson uh, on October 22nd, the R1T truck has been driven and reviewed by the press, though, uh, Bloomberg Motor Trend, Roadshow and CNET, and they've generally been positive, noting the large storage space, Bloomberg noted the truck is cute, but not a badass pickup truck. I'm not sure I'm looking for Bloomberg for their take on these Amazon and Ford own about a third of the company combined. And those are really two good votes of confidence. Uh, Amazon owns 20%, which is now worth over $20 billion. I wonder if that's Bezos trying to stick it to Elon, you know, they have that little back and forth over rocket ships, and Ford owns a 12% stake valued at over 10 billion. So you have to wonder, like, what's going on with the relationship with Ford and Rivian? Ford 
just was it six months ago that they announced the electric f-150 and they kind of surprised the market with that announcement that this was coming and like ford owns 12 percent of a company that they're the number one competitor of i mean how does that work i mean obviously ford is getting an education here but i don't think they're hedging their bet at all i, I think they want to win the category so that's got to be interesting at 12 percent, you would have a board seat but how do you give a board seat to ford maybe ford thinks they have a chance to buy the company uh but now that the market caps 100 billion it's more than what ford's worth so rivian with zero well with 150 cars delivered to their employees could buy ford or be an equal merger it's bizarre i mean the world has literally gotten disconnected from reality that doesn't mean rivian is not a real product a real company so let me be clear about that i actually think they're more real than like let's say fisker which i think is going to be just a total washout like nicola because fisker everything he touches seems to die <laughs> you know it's like the third time they resuscitated the carcass of Fisker, uh, and it, their cars are ugly and gross. And I never liked him or the cars. I'll be totally honest. Uh, in the two point five years prior to going public, Rivian raised ten billion, uh, over ten billion. Most recent round they closed was two point five billion in July. They raised almost twelve billion for the IPO, which is great. They have a war chest, so good for them. Uh, Amazon has ordered a hundred thousand Rivian delivery vehicles to be delivered by twenty thirty. Uh, so that is a, a pretty big deal to have Amazon as a customer. And obviously, Bezos cares deeply about the climate as do most I think people in the world who uh, have any any trust of the scientific method or uh, have read a newspaper or opened their eyes and gone outside and seen the extreme weather. According to CNBC, Rivian reserves 7% of its IPO allocation for a direct share program for people who pre ordered uh, and apparently, you know, collectively, the headline is they made millions of dollars, but I think it was 175 shares is what they were allocated each. Somebody can fact check me on that, which means, you know, people may have made enough not to cover the cost, uh, but they may have made a little bit. It's that time of year again, the holidays are coming up. And have you been thinking about upgrading your tech? I bet you have. And if so, you can take advantage of Dell Technologies Black Friday sneak peek sale. That's right. It's powerful tech and perfect timing. You're going to save over 45% on some of Dell's latest products, including Dell's new mobile monitors that can travel with you on the go. They're amazing. Have you ever been to a coffee shop and thought, you know what, I wish I had another monitor? I do. I travel with one. And now you can connect with just a USB-C cable. Boom. Now you got double the productivity. Maybe you even want to put two of those on. That's a power move. When I go to hotels, you'll see me. I've got my three monitors set up and it's amazing. And here at home, I have my three beautiful Dell monitors as well. So here's what you can do. You just visit dell.com slash twist, D-E-L-L.com slash twist. And you can save up to 45% today at dell.com slash twist. No need to wait till Black Friday. You can do it right now. So just looking at market caps of other company, GM, 86 billion, Ford, 77 billion, and Daimler, uh, which makes Mercedes-Benz, you may have heard of them, is $108 billion. So just absolutely crazy, disconnected from reality. Rivian's losing a ton of money, as you would expect, uh, for a company that is pre-launch. It's really hard to build these. First nine months of 2021, they lost uh, just over a billion dollars. Again, that's not shocking. That's to be expected. Uh, and they're planning on offering a subscription service to customers to create reoccurring revenue streams, services they're planning, telematics-based insurance. I think that's something Tesla's doing as well. Proactive vehicle service, like maintenance and repair. I think that's also something that a lot of people order. Maybe some software updates. So I, I don't think that uh, Rivian is going to really be able to beat Ford. They're certainly not going to be able to beat Tesla. 
but they do have uh, close to $20 billion in cash. So they're gonna be able to put up a good fight. They're gonna be able to lose money if they lose 2 billion a year, let's say 3 billion a year. Uh, you know, they're gonna have something like five years of runway here. And that's probably what they should do. They should probably, you know, make a really good go of it, lose money on every car, or break even on every car, and really uh, try to build something important in the world. But you have to also remember, like self driving is going to be a big piece of this. So I don't know that they have the charging stations, the self driving. But the delivery vehicle space, I think is going to be a very real one. Of course, you have to ask yourself, what if Tesla decides, you know what, we have the Cybertruck coming, they've got I think a half million the last I remember was 500,000. So the Cybertruck has 10 times the number of deposits, I believe, uh, for Cybertruck, somebody can fact check me on that. So I think they're going to have a hard time competing at Cybertruck and F 150. I'm going to guess a Rivian comes in third to those two competitors. Uh, it's obviously going to come in third to that. Uh, oh, wow, Cybertruck has over a million deposits now. So 20 times what Rivian has. Rivian should be worth if I uh, gave them just an incredible amount of credit, if you gave Rivian a uh, million dollars in valuation for every truck they'd sold, that would be 50 billion. That'd be kind of crazy because you don't make a million dollars off each one. So if you gave them a hundred thousand in value, it would be worth 5 billion. I think 5 billion would be a fine valuation for Rivian right now. Uh, but obviously they've raised all this money. So they have to have a valuation over 17 billion because that's how much cash they have. So maybe double that 40 billion, even there, it doesn't make much sense. I think it's a terrible stock to own right now. Uh, I wonder if Tesla Q and the folks who were betting against Tesla all this time, if they were betting against Tesla as Tesla was de delivering hundreds of 1000s of vehicles, and was making all this progress on self driving, and had the supercharging stations and the gigafactory, and the power wall technology and solar, and was doing uh, electric grid work, if they were betting against that for five years, 10 years, and shorting it, I wonder if Tesla Q would make all the money they lost on Tesla back shorting Rivian. I'm not, I would not short anything in this kind of stock market, because nobody knows when this madness is going to end. And when I say madness, I mean, the overvaluing of massively speculative stocks. My uh, best advice to you all the, the public out there, and I hate to get financial advice, is uh, you really need to think, do you want to be placing bets? on companies without product market fit at extremely high valuations. That is what I, I was talking to my brother or my mom, and they were like, Hey, should I place a bet on this? I would say, well, are there other companies that have the same valuation that are growing and that have a large consumer base like Airbnb, like Uber, like Robinhood, like Coinbase, like Stripe? I mean, there are many companies that are in a similar valuation range that have massive amounts of revenue. And, you know, depending on the company, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of paying customers. Why would you place if you could? It's not like this is the only bet you could place and, you know, including versus Fisker or other speculative companies, Nicola, if you're going to place speculative bets, you should get rewarded from them and you should have a evaluation commensurate with the speculation. So if these if it was worth 5 billion, 10 billion, even 20 billion, I'd say, okay, maybe you want to take a speculative bet here. Sure. But at 100 billion, I don't know how that makes any sense. Okay, so uh, that's my thoughts on Rivian. Congratulations on securing the bag. That's job number one for the team there. I mean, delivering the vehicles <laughs> and securing the bag at this point in their lifespan uh, or in their timeline. 
both of those are equally important because these things are expensive to produce factories are expensive and this is real world uh research and you're up against tesla which i mean good luck i mean and ford good luck i, I think these guys are roadkill i'll be totally honest i don't think they're going to carve out a niche i mean just this is like going up against like facebook and google for ad revenue right like sure twitter's trying sure snapchat's trying but going up against the duopoly of google and uh facebook in the ad space you know just very hard there's kind of a duopoly here as well i think ford uh and tesla with cybertruck these are two and i'm just talking about the truck sector these are two people who really are crushing and if you look at ford their profits come from trucks and they have the ford transit do you think they're not going to produce an electric Ford Transit and then absolutely just roll over Rivian's delivery vans? Of course they are. And then what if Tesla decides, you know what, the Model Y, if we just build it a little taller, they can make a, a Transit competitor immediately. The amount of time it would take Tesla to create, and I'm, I don't have any inside information here. Obviously, sometimes people don't think I do. Of course, I know some people like <laughs> Tesla. The Model Y could be a Ford Transit competitor, I would guess, in under a year. Like, they already have those factories, and making it a big, giant box, it would have the same dashboard, the same seats up front, it would just be a little bit taller. Not much. Same drivetrain, same self-driving. It would just be taller and maybe have sliding doors on each side. It would not be very difficult. I, I got to think less than a year to just make a Tesla box um so anyway good luck <laughs> it's kind of crazy and then for people who are speculating on stocks please um i hate to get financial advice but i hope that you've paid down your credit card debt i hope you own your home and if you're placing speculative bets just get some thinking around index funds uh get some thinking around you know wealth front and having a, a balanced portfolio and thinking about when you're going to need that money because the market could crash and if the market does crash who's going to get hit First, this is what I would encourage you to think about. If we have a correction, over 20% correction, who gets hit first? The speculative stocks with no customers. The companies that are emerging with, you know, tens of millions of customers or the companies that have hundreds of millions of customers. Well, I think it's going to kind of happen in that order. The companies that have hundreds of millions to billions of customers are going to, you know, be the places where people retreat, the places that have dividends, established revenue streams. And then who gets hit first? I think it's going to be the massively speculative ones. So buying public stocks in this category is kind of like doing what I do for a day job. But we invest at tens of millions of dollars. And they're asking you to invest in these companies at tens of billions. So just do the math, people, is all I'm uh, imploring you to do is just do some basic math. Take the valuation of the company. Take how many cars they delivered this month, times it by 12, divide those two numbers. So if we were to divide those two numbers in this case, they delivered whatever 150 cars, let's round it up to 200. That's 2500 for the year. What's 100 billion divided by 2500 cars delivered? That's the valuation per car. So if we were to do that math equals $40 million per car. Somebody check my math on that $40 million per car. If we give them credit for delivering 200 cars a month, the third more than they delivered this month, and then you times it times 12 months. That's $40 million per car. Now I know it's a little bit of uh, funny math, right? Well, the math is sound, but it's an interesting way to look at it. Well, that's how other businesses get judged, you know, either earnings, revenue, customers, 
etc. You really can't value a company this high, even if we gave them credit for 25,000 vehicles, like 10 times that amount, it would still be valued at $4 million per car. And that's maybe what they do two years out or something, right? Uh, so this is a bit crazy. It's disconnected from reality. I don't know how many ways to tell you folks when something is disconnected from reality. I nailed it on Nicola. I nailed it on Theranos. Uh, I nailed it on Tether. I know of what I speak because I do this for a living. This valuation is disconnected from reality. Take the 17 billion out, you get 83 billion. 83 billion, you take out the cash. Is it worth that? No, it's not. Clearly not worth that. So be careful, folks. Okay, next up, a really great interview with Aaron Wright from Open Law. And we, he's basically the guy. He's the guy who set up all these DAOs. He's the DAO king. He's creating the AWS and the legal framework for DAOs. He's doing it for NFTs. He's doing it for other uh, crypto projects. And basically, smartest guy I know to date about DAOs. And I learned a lot. And you're going to learn a lot. Stick with us. It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in Intellac. According to the deal memo, Intellac's transportation innovation could save the airline industry $3 billion a year. Intellact uses machine learning to improve safety, recognize hazards, and reduce delays. And they're already being used at some major international airports. And these airports serve over 100 million passengers annually, according to the deal memo. We all know that all over the world, tech companies are innovating and driving results for investors. Well, our crowd analyzes many of these companies across the entire global private market. Then they select companies with the greatest growth potential and bring them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics to quantum computing and more. In state of the art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when the growth potential is greatest. And that's early. So here's your call to action. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist and review the current deals. There is no payment involved until you decide to invest. That's rcrowd.com slash twist to sign up for free. Okay, we've been talking about DAOs on this program, on social media, on all in. Uh, they're very promising and very confusing. They're theoretical more than reality today. And our guest today is trying to take them from being theoretical to being reality. So I'm very excited to welcome Aaron Wright to the program for his first appearance. He is the co-founder of uh, a company called Open Law, which is going to rebrand to Tribute Labs. And uh, Open Law makes it easier to create legal arrangements uh, that work with Ethereum. And one of those would be DAOs, I assume. Welcome to the program, Aaron. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jason. You heard my brief uh, introduction there. DAOs have captured people's imagination. Um, and you are one of those people, but you're also an attorney and a professor of the law. Uh, so you are trying to take what is, uh, I think, largely theoretical, in some cases, hype, in some cases, um, the promise of a brighter future, and then turn it into reality, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, so I'm a law professor at Cardozo Law School. I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in the crypto ecosystem from starting in Bitcoin in 2011, played a role helping to launch Ethereum. Uh, co-authored a book looking at blockchain law and policy, and we're really bringing to life a lot of the concepts that have animated many folks in the Ethereum community from the, the beginning, most notably DAOs. 
Okay, so DAOs, for those people who don't know, stand for decentralized autonomous organizations. So if we break down those three words, decentralized, they don't exist in one place under one authority, I think would be the best description of that autonomous, they work automatically according to some preset rules. Um, and they're an organization, which means there's, I would think many people in them, uh, but we don't specify how many in it. Is that an accurate description of what these are? Uh, and how would you describe them um, to a person who doesn't know what they are, but understands startups and business and why they should exist? Yeah, so I, I think that that's the broad mantle, right? How do we uh, create organizations that are more decentralized, have more people that are involved, are more automated and potentially over time, uh, completely autonomous? Um, and our organizations that pull together capital, pull together resources, pull together people so that they can do things more productively. Uh, the notion and concept around DAOs has kicked around the crypto community for quite some time, starting with Bitcoin. Uh, in 2013, Dan Larimer, who put together a blockchain project called EOS, began to conceptualize what a decentralized autonomous corporation would look like. So thinking about using tools that are available on blockchain technology, things like smart contracts and other kind of techniques and approaches to begin to automate aspects of how a corporation would operate. And the Ethereum ecosystem really generalized that concept around the notion of a DAO, um, which is thinking about not just corporations, but all forms of organizations and potential organizations that are a bit flatter, less hierarchical in nature. And I think that's the core uh, insight is that due to the efficiency that blockchain technology presents in terms of transferring assets, pulling together assets, collectively managing assets, and the ability to use blockchain technology to uh, vote or record votes, sum up votes, uh, and take action based on those votes, you can begin to imagine organizations that are flatter. Uh, they don't necessarily have a board of directors, a CEO, a general partner, or some um, you know predefined centralized management, but can still take actions together. And that's kind of the, I think, one of the most interesting things about, about DAOs. So uh, we're taking out the board of directors, we're taking out the management team, uh, and we're replacing it with voting by anonymous folks. How is that better? Some people might look at that and say, this sounds a little bit chaotic. It sounds like there's no repercussions. And didn't we, and you studied the law and teach it, didn't we add the law to create uh, for good purpose? Uh, and we added corporate governance for a good purpose, which is there should be stewards. Uh, and there should be people who are fiduciaries for the shareholders and are basically watching the store. What we're describing here with DAOs, I guess, is maybe taking that out or changing it in a way. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's uh, uh, necessarily needs to be anonymous folks that are pulling together capital uh, through uh, the company that I co-founded, Tribute Labs. We've now supported nine different DAOs. There's about two hundred plus million dollars worth of ether that's been contributed to them. Uh, they've uh, done a lot of different activity, which I hope we get to dive into in more detail. Um, and everybody that's joined these DAOs has gone through compliance checks, they're accredited, they're, they've gone through KYC. Um, so they may operate inside the DAO by a pseudonym, uh, but they're known uh, at least to a party if there's any compliance or any regulatory or other issues that come up. Uh, there's other DAO experiments which are a little bit more free-flowing um, that are focused more on managing uh, smart contract-based systems, particularly in the DeFi ecosystem. There, it's not anonymous, right? It's synonymous. There's always an address tied to some token balance, which is used for, for voting. 
but I, you know, I don't think you need to whittle away all the lessons of governance that we've learned over the past several hundred years when it comes to managing organizations. Instead, what we're really exploring is whether or not we can evolve beyond expert-driven organizations. Due to the efficiencies that are presented by blockchain technology, can different groups of people scattered all across the, uh, all across the globe work together to make decisions that are as good, if not better, than these expert-driven organizations that we've had up until this point in time? And the answer seems to be, and there's still a lot of evidence that needs to be collected, time is still going to need to test these. The answer seems to be yes, right? These types of flatter organizations can make decisions, they can move quick, we can filter information, they can perform due diligence if, if it's focused on investments, um, and, they can, and they can begin to make an impact in a way similar, if not better, uh, to some of these more traditional organizations and structures. And I think the best evidence of that, or perhaps the best case you could build for that would be, well, if we have a hundred units of, uh, in a DAO, let's call them, uh, you know, um, there's a hundred Ethereum or ETH in a, in a DAO, uh, you put in 40 of them, and then 60 other people put in two each, I'm sorry, 30 other people put in two each, you would have 40% of the vote, the other 60, 30 people combined would have 60%. Your vote should matter more because you have more skin in the game. That is one of the core tenants here. Is it not? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, for the DAS that we put together, it operates similar to that. It's all pro rata based on your ether or contribution in ether. Um, it's not weighted towards heavy ownership, such as like 40%. The maximum amount that any one party could own is less than 10%. It's 9%. Mm. Um, but in reality, it's usually 1% to 2%. Um, people participate in these structures uh, in general, uh, individually. So that means their skin is in the game, right? Their incentives are aligned. Uh, there's not kind of this layer of GPLPs. Uh, where the general partner doesn't have skin in the game. So they're making decisions with their own capital. Um, and they're working together, not just with a handful of people, but with a whole disparate group of people from across the internet, uh, who are deep in on a particular topic. And that's where I think the magic kind of happens. We are living in an era, particularly in crypto, where it's very, very hard to stay up to speed with all the opportunities, with all the, mm. uh, the different teams, all the different, uh, potential directions in which the ecosystem can go. And having a small group of people, let's say one or two general partners, uh, really steering that ship is not working. Uh, you need to actually band together to kind of sift through the information that we're, uh, that we're seeing, uh, get created and, um, and all the opportunities that are manifesting, particularly when it comes to Web3 and crypto. So this, uh, brings up an interesting point. We have the LLC structure in America, a limited liability corporation, and, and that has been copied around the world, I, I believe. I think it may have had its origins in, England, correct? Uh, Wyoming. Uh, yeah. So it's a yeah. US invention. One of the most. Oh, it is a US invention. US okay. Inventions. Yep. Exactly. Great. So um, with LLCs, you can do many different things. You could run a law firm, an accounting firm, a recruiter. You could buy a piece of art and share ownership in it. You could create a venture capital fund. So when we say DAOs or we say LLCs, what we're really saying is like a platform to conduct business and have some rule set. Would we agree on that? Yeah, uh, somewhat. So, you know, if you're uh, pulling together capital and trying to make a profit and there's no legal structure applied to it in the US by default, uh, you're likely going to be considered a general partnership. General partnerships are kind of the OG of organizations. They're amazing in many ways uh, because they come by default. Uh, lots of states, depending on where the partnership is organized, has uh, slightly different rules, but they're largely standardized. LLCs provide additional benefits. Um, you can register with a specific state, 
and receive limitation of liability, which is critically important. Uh, I know you've spoken to lots of startups that you worked with about the importance of limit, limited liability uh, for sure. investors and for uh, the, the teams. But what it enables you to do is limit the risk uh, associated with the commercial activity. Uh, LLCs in the US are hyper, hyper flexible. Um, they're really creatures of contract. And so you have a lot of latitude, a lot like an engineer has when they open up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, their editor, and they want a program to kind of structure and put together different structures. So DAOs uh, today, some are free, free form, right? There's no mm-hmm. legal structure with it. Lots of early crypto OGs are going to say that that's the way to do it. Uh, but at some point, those projects could face an issue and that could create liability for members or, or folks with deep pockets in those organizations. The DAOs that we support uh, actually are rooted in a US LLC. And we've put together different um, a different operating agreement and different structures to make sure that they can comply with US law and manage the risks that we think are sensible. So our approach is a lot like Coinbase, right? We think that DAOs are a big category. Uh, we think that they're going to transform the world just like we've seen uh, other uh, digital asset and crypto-based um, projects and initiatives do that. And we're really pushing to do that in a way that's uh, responsible um, and can make sure that they can continue to grow and flourish here in the U.S. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps in being a great entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than a broker in getting great insurance that will protect you and your team and your vision and your investors and your board members. Here's how Embroker works. Their technology saves you a ton of time and a ton of money. Prices are up to 20% lower and they have better coverage than the incumbents because they use technology. You know the story. So you can go from sign up to a quote and to purchase in just 10 minutes. So when you work with Embroker, instead of those incumbents, you're not dealing with large, slow corporations. And the sign up takes just a couple of days, not these weeks or months that I've experienced in the past. And the process is transparent with no opaque pricing. So I'll explain two crucial types of insurance that you need to know about. Cyber insurance. This is obvious. It covers hacks. That happens all the time. You just don't hear about it. And DNO insurance. This helps you if directors, people on the board, or officers, and the C-suite, the top 10, 5, 10 people at a company, do something really dumb. And then you get sued. Here's your call to action to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups. I want you to go to Embroker.com slash twist. E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. Embroker.com slash twist. And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off if you use the offer code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. That stands for This Week in Startups. Okay, thanks, Embroker. Great job. I think what's great about your analogy is you can't open up uh, a, a window and program an LLC. You can get on the phone with an attorney and have them program it through the law. But what we're really talking about here is taking what's worked in LLCs for hundreds of years uh, and basically making it programmable, which is super exciting, and making it global. And then instead of having the execution occur through uh, good faith, which is how I would say LLCs kind of run today, with the law as a backstop to bad behavior, these have the law built into them in certain cases. Am I correct? Yeah, so it's both. So, you know, in our DAOs, we call them wrap DAOs. They are anchored in the U- in a U.S. legal entity. Um, those entities are organized in Delaware. That provides the legal protection. So if something goes sideways, if there's a risk, if somebody needs to go into court, um, then you, you actually know what you're dealing with, you know, and lawyers and judges and juries can kind of begin to comprehend that. Uh, at the same time, you can put in extra protections through smart contract-based systems. So you can put in controls to make sure that nobody runs away with the capital. You can begin to program 
uh, different ways in which the pooled assets can be managed by this collective group without having to necessarily rely on a centralized administrator for all those functions. And, and that's really beneficial, right? That means that different people from around the globe that may not know or trust one another, they may know each other just from Twitter, uh, they may have met, met each other at a couple of conferences, they may never have met anybody before, they have a little bit more trust that uh, if they pull together their capital, it's not going to get uh, stolen in some sort of way. Um, and that uh, opens up a whole new vector for people to work together uh, in ways that are different, right? You don't have to be located in the same small sliver of California or New York, New York or another major city. Uh, you know, you could be sitting in Ohio, you could be sitting in Bali, you could be sitting in uh, South Africa, and you could all work together towards, um, towards this common vision and purpose. So one analogy we've liked to use for DAOs is, uh, in many ways, they're a lot like a subreddit uh, or a message board, but with a bank account. Uh, mm. So you develop relationships that are personal, you, you can uh, chat about something you're passionate about, but instead of just limiting it to a chat or conversation, you can begin to deploy capital against that too. Um, and that I think is pretty interesting. And that I think is the direction where we're going to see more and more organizations continue to move towards. So this is super fascinating. Um, if you think about the formation of capital here in the United States through venture capital or something I'm a, I have a speciality in, uh, which is syndicates, uh, being the first one on AngelList and having the largest one in the world at the syndicate, we send an email, I pick a company, people decide if they want to invest, they pick the amount, they send it, we do a bunch of paperwork around it, there's $25,000 in costs, maybe by the end of the day, maybe 15 to 25, uh, you know, wiring fees, etc. You create a DAO, everybody puts their money in. And then when a decision comes up, like, should we sell our shares? So we buy into a company, let's say it's Uber, Masayoshi san offers to buy Uber shares, if my Uber shares in this analogy, were in a DAO, and we had 100 members, each one owned 1%, the membership could vote, do we want to sell half of our Uber shares to uh, Masayoshi san, or we could do another arrangement, maybe uh, how many if we assume that we had to act collectively, we could do some sort of uh, other rule like, hey, what is the max and the minimum you would like to sell? And then we come up with some weighted average. But we would have to have organized that decision because this is a decision that does happen in venture capital when to distribute shares, when to take advantage of secondary. You rely on a general partner like myself or Sequoia uh, with their new fund. That they will decide when they distribute their shares in Square was the example Ruloff Botha was using on a recent podcast. Do they do them at the IPO price at 15 or 20 bucks? Do they do it at $70 or do they do it at 200 they have to make that decision. The LPs are trusting them. In this case, the LPs would just make their own decision, correct? Or uh, for our DAOs, the, everything is managed by uh, the members, right? So that includes all investment decisions. That includes any distributions. Mm. So for the Lao, which was the first DAO that we set up, it's more focused on supporting projects. It has about $70 million worth of Ether that's been contributed to it. Wow. It's back to 100 plus projects. Uh, a number of them have turned out to become quite successful. It was It's called the, Lao, L-A-O? LAO, yeah. What does this stand for? Um, so the DAO was the original uh, kind sure. of uh, DAO experiment in the Ethereum ecosystem. So we just did a riff on it because we Got anchored it. the DAO in a limited liability company. Ah, um, very nice. Yeah. And people can read about that at thelao.io um, Correct. is the website for it. So you set this up when? Uh, so we set this up about 18 months ago. Right. Uh, it, it came in first come first serve people contributed 120 ETH at the time, which was about I think about $50,000 ETH has obviously run up quite a bit in price. Um, and all decisions are made collectively. And so we've had some of those decisions like should we sell uh, certain tokens or assets that 
that we receive based on investments and distributions you know have been made but what's nice about thinking about blockchain technology those are decisions members can make and the mm. execution aspect can occur automatically uh, via you know different smart contract based systems uh, so it's a lot more efficient to handle some of these administrative uh, type roles where the members themselves can manage their own capital the members themselves can manage uh, lots of these administrative tasks without the intermediation that lawyers or fund administrators or general partners uh, currently provide and so the function of a general partner in the venture space would be to find deals, uh, vet them, meet with the founders, uh, maybe even do diligence on them, then present them to the partnership, which would then vote on, uh, you know, deploying LP capital in a la in the Lao, who finds the ideas and presents them? Where do they present them? And who does the due diligence? Yeah, so there's currently, I think, 68 members of the Lao. Uh, so the, the deals come from all different sources. The folks that are members of the Lao have been part of the Ethereum ecosystem pretty much from the beginning. So major uh, founders of significant projects, protocols, uh, folks that have been deep in this space since you know, 2011, 2012. Um, so they just have an instinctive feel for the direction of the ecosystem. They have a lot of relationships already with a number of the projects and teams. And so if they hear about a funding opportunity, they'll present it to the group uh, that's discussed. Where do they present it? On Zoom or in a, a Discord? Both. Yeah. So they present it in Discord. Uh, so different channels are kind of created to talk about the opportunity, uh, to talk about the team. Um, there's oftentimes some soft polling that occurs through Discord to see if there's rough consensus just around a particular project. Uh, there's two biweekly calls where people can tune in. Wow. It's voluntary. Uh, where they can chat about the different deals or opportunities, um, and then action is taken. Somebody can put up a governance proposal to fund the project. Uh, it opens up a seven-day window uh, to vote yes or no uh, on whether or not to back it. If more people say yes, then no. So instead of quorum-based voting, it's consensus-based voting, then the capital is committed. And to kind of soften the blow of whether or not you disagree with how this group is operating, you have the right to leave at any point in time what uh, Ethereum developers have called rage quitting. So you can just uh, oh. basically um, walk away with any undeployed capital, or you can sell your interest um, at the member's approval to a, a third party or to another member. And so Got this it. has worked really, really well. Have uh, many people rage quit? Uh, so we haven't had anybody uh, rage quit in the Lao yet. Uh, we had some people uh, or one person rage quit in a uh, related DAO, Flamingo DAO, which is an NFT-focused DAO uh, that was incubated by the Lao um, in, right at the beginning when it started. So it, it hasn't been something that's been exercised that much. But I do think the ability to walk away with your capital, a very, very strong uh, redemption right, which is one way to think about it, is really important. Uh, it kind of keeps everybody in check. And it's, it's a great um, vote of no confidence if somebody wants to do exactly. something that is uh, uh, which a member considered unethical or stupid or inadvisable, they can say, wow, what am I doing with this group? <laughs> it would be like being a member. And they're like, yeah, we have this incredible golf course where we're not gonna, you know, take care of it. It's like, well, why am I a member of this golf club? If you're not gonna take care of the greens, I'm out and give me my money back. And you can't leave that kind of membership, nor can you leave a venture fund. Uh, if you try to leave a venture fund, you lose uh, your principal in it. So it's quite punitive uh, to leave those. So in this, um, you don't have that issue. There seems to be a lot of, uh, in my experience, infrastructure to running uh, uh, an investment club. And I actually call the syndicate.com that I run an investment club. There, you need to have customer support. You 
need to host these meetings, you need to do deal sourcing. So you have given that out to the folks in the DAO. But there's still some amount of operations that will be needed, I would think over time, how does that get paid for you have fees in a venture structure, and those fees trickle down to create a support staff, somebody can pick up the phone, somebody can do research uh, on a tax issue or a legal issue. Um, you know, like if one of your projects that you backed, tried to screw you, how do you then know that they're trying to screw you or the or the Lao and or the flamingo and how do you take legal action or, you know, who manages all that? In other words, how is it staffed? <laughs> yeah. Um, so each one of the DAOs uh, has enlisted my, my company, Attribute Labs, as a service provider. And we mm. fill in a lot of these gaps. So we've handled everything from the legal structuring to the maintenance of the DAP uh, to community support. Uh, we we kind of joke that we're like a mod on a subreddit or a whip in Congress where we can help people focus their activities or if a vote needs to be taken. Uh, we can prepare certain information to to press that forward. And then we handle tax and compliance. So all those uh, uh, areas in between what you're describing, which is just the core decision making that we want the members to do uh, and should be doing, we we increasingly take care of that. Um, and we take a, a 2% uh, annual fee. There's some variation on that depending on the DAO, but that's generally what we're, uh, what we're focused on. No carry, uh, which I think is important. Uh, because the members are making their own decisions, and we don't have any investment-related authority. It's all up to the members. Uh, so we're really like the support. Um, we joke that we're like a we, we our DAOs are a little bit like a reverse mullet, um, and we handle um, the business, you know, all the business and operations. Yeah. And uh, you guys have the party. <laughs> yeah, so the folks in the front can have the party. Exactly. So two percent of seventy million is one point four million. Uh, so every year that you run that, you get one point four million. What do you do for that 1.4 million? That that seems like a big number. Yeah, so uh, we provide uh, the legal structuring. So we have the structure for the Lao, Flamingo, Neptune, um, uh, a digital fashion DAO called Red DAO. Uh, we also have a uh, internet stable. We've yes, we've taken our fake internet money to uh, build a fake internet stable, um, mm -hmm. and we also have a metaverse DAO. So there's about uh, nine DAOs right now. Uh, that we no, but I'm saying, what do you do for that 1.4 million? That seems like a big number to me. In venture, the two percent that you get as fees is for sourcing the deals, diligencing the deals, going on the boards and managing. Yeah. You don't do that function, so it's a big number. What do you, what what, what does the DAO get for 1.4 million aside from they, the legal structure? Sure. So they get the legal structuring. They yeah. also um, get the uh, tooling. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're able to pull together. Uh, what we call a DAP. You can view it like an online portal where governance and other decision making ah. can occur. Uh, we provide the community support, which does take a bit of work, you know, just to keep uh, people focused and push. So those along. two things, let's let, let's double click on both those. So in a way, you're like Amazon Web Services or Salesforce, like a, a SaaS provider of the management software, where the rules are written, where the votes are taken, that is actually super valuable. Exactly. And we've been building out advanced uh, DAO tooling to make this all a lot more efficient. So right now, you know, crypto is still early, right? We're probably past the first inning, but I don't think we've seen the full ball game yet. Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the DAO side to lower costs, to increase operation. But what we've seen across the nine DAOs is the types of problems that we think that these online groups are going to face. And so since we see those problems, we can begin to solve them and then push that down into a co coherent tech stack. So you can view what we're supporting as a, a broader network. Uh, instead of being a network of blogs or a network of uh, different uh, media properties, it's really a network of these uh, DAO-like structures. 
mm-hmm. or DAO structures that all have the same or similar legal structuring, same tech stack. It's completely vertically integrated. In so what you're learning in pipes. Flamingo might inform the Lao, might inform the next one. That makes total exactly. sense. And then double clicking on the community function, you host that week, those biweekly calls. Um, you inform members, send them email updates of what's going on. You're prepared tax documents and statements for them around exactly. all this. Yeah, so in so a way, we, you're like AngelList, Carta, or Shore, which provides LLC services for folks. Right. And software. So, yeah. Exactly. So it's like that. And then there's uh, areas in which our DAOs are expanding. Uh, mm-hmm. So Flamingo DAO is a great example. It was really the first uh, substantive vehicle to explore NFTs collecting. So it launched mm-hmm. October of last year. As an example, it's like the number three holder of CryptoPunks. Uh, got in well, well before this upswing. And that was incubated by members of the Lao. So b- through this hive mind, this collection of folks that we've assembled, they saw the NFT opportunities, I think, before most uh, traditional venture capital funds and even, um, you know, um, emerging crypto funds and were able to get in uh, earlier than that. Uh, but that's expanding beyond even kind of uh, things like collecting or supporting projects. They're beginning to work with artists and um, and doing drops in a more collaborative way. So there's additional technology and tooling that's needed for it. Uh, so lots of these different functions were able to support uh, as these these organizations continue to grow. They're pretty organic in, in terms of their their general Are nature. They, I, I, since you're doing them as a wrapped DAO, uh, these wrapped DAOs are they um, limited to accredited investors then here in the United States because of the accreditation laws? So yeah, we we have uh, the answer as to whether they need to be is still an open question. Uh, so we've sure. gone through kind of a bifurcated analysis. Uh, we're um, you know in the abundance of caution, a little bit like I, how I think Circle approaches things. We want to take the most conservative approach that we can. Sounds uh, wise. We've limited it to accredited investors, and everybody goes through a KYC and compliance uh, related check. Um, and that's another reason why having uh, a service like Tribute Labs is important, right? If uh, there's a change in the regulatory landscape. If there's more requirements that need to be handled, we'll be able to hand that, handle that and kind of mutualize the cost across the entire network, uh, which we think is important. Uh, so yes, 99 members uh, for now. Um, and then everybody is accredited. Uh, but people are, you know, stretched out across the globe, which I think is pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, so you're following the LLC rules of 99 members or $10 million cap? With 250, I think, is the current LLC structures for investing in startups. Well, there's a couple different ex- ex- exceptions. So we rely on kind of the 99 member instead of the 250 member, $10 million. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's a limitation. How about the open-endedness or the closed-endedness of this? So when you form the DAO, there's a period in which people can join, but the only way to join after that is to buy somebody else out. Is that correct? Yeah, it's either to purchase the interest from somebody else or the members have the ability to dilute themselves. So what we've seen mm-hmm. with the Lao and Flamingo, um, the members have decided to do that and they've, oh, wow. they've let in more folks. So in the Lao, there's a 68 members in Flamingo, there's about 70 members and periodically they let in new folks as part of that membership, usually at a higher price. Um, oh, wow. So they can command a higher price for them to join in. Uh, which means they make a little profit on new members joining. Uh, so they don't make a direct profit, but it, it, it kind of increases their the, share. Yeah. The, the unit, the value of each unit um, right. uh, in, in the, the DAO. So as an example, for Flamingo, initially to join, it was 60 Ether for 100,000 units. 
Um, uh, it looks like they're opening up new membership and it's going to cost about uh, 3,000 Ether uh, for the same 100,000 units. Got it. And that would be commensurate with two things, the exclusivity of it, which people can decide if they uh, see value in, but also the portfolio I would think has appreciated over some amount of time because they're probably still holding some ETH and the NFTs might have gone up. Uh, correct. Yeah. And then when you join as a new member, you enjoy in the, in the profits and or losses of the entire portfolio. Um, so in, for many of these DAOs, it, they're not really viewed as kind of pass-through entities. Instead, at least the DAOs we support, they're really viewed as um, you know, in for the long run. And so joining our, our DAOs, whether it's the Lao when you're looking for kind of exposure more at the project level or Flamingo, which is looking for exposure at the NFT level, you kind of get to join a, a pretty well vetted portfolio uh, of either NFTs or projects or whatever other types of investment opportunities um, uh, our DAOs provide. Okay, so the Genesis DAO, uh, which was created back in 2016, um, created quite a brouhaha. <laughs> Um, a bunch of Ethereum were stolen, somebody hacked the smart contract. Tell us a little bit about what was learned from that case. Uh, and then how you're protecting against what people I think reasonably have a fear of, which is like, these smart contracts are run automatically, can they be hacked? You know, we've had a big long discussion, you know, would Bitcoin eventually be hacked? Could it be hacked? It's been pretty belt to last so far. But we did have Solana go down for some period of time. It is possible for things to get hacked, as we saw with the Genesis DAO. So maybe you could explain to the audience what happened with the Genesis DAO, and then what the community learned, and then how that informs what you're doing going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, the Ethereum ecosystem has been completely fascinated with DAOs pretty much from the beginning. Shortly after Ethereum launched, the first kind of DAO experiment was hatched, and that was called the DAO. Um, it was initially aiming to pull together about $500,000 worth of Ether to begin to support projects. It collected about $150 million worth of Ether, which today would be worth tens of billions of dollars. Um, and the, the concept was to have the community identify projects that are worthy of being supported, um, have them built in an open source way, um, and hopefully, you know, not just use digital assets like we see in the Bitcoin ecosystem, hold, you know, hold those assets, but put them to productive deployment in some capacity. Unfortunately, uh, the smart contract based system underpinning uh, the DAO itself was compromised and mm. a tremendous amount of the, the underlying ether was drained by a hacker, attacker, robber. There's different ways people want to characterize it. Um, that led Clearly to a bad a actor at a minimum. <laughs> yeah, uh, completely, probably a bad actor. I think people have still been trying to identify this, this person or a group of persons that uh, was responsible for it. And it led to a, a big uh, conversation inside the Ethereum ecosystem and ultimately a hard fork of Ethereum. So basically, so like they could roll back the changes. Upgrade. Yeah, exactly. Um, but since that time, we've learned a lot about smart contracts. It's very hard to, to build smart contracts. It's a lot like programming hardware. Um, so it's difficult. It takes a lot of work and expertise. Uh, but there's been a lot of developments inside that initial experiment. Um, and... Uh, the smart contract-based system that we use, uh, which is called Moloch V2, or the newer smart contract-based system that we developed, which is the TributeDAO framework, uh, aims to solve a, a number of those problems. Time will tell whether or not they're, they're perfectly secure, just like time will tell if Bitcoin's perfectly secure. There's always going to be some security risks. Um, but uh, so far, it looks like uh, we've been able to address it. The second issue that the DAO itself brought up was just regulatory issues. So what are the interests in these in, in these DAOs, are they going to be classified as securities or commodities? 
Uh, the SEC did weigh in on that one. Uh, they issued a 21A report, so a non-binding report. Nobody went to prison or got in trouble or got fined based on the DAO, but they, they kind of weighed in as, as, as to what they thought those tokens would be classified as. And the answer there, since there was some folks that were in charge of it, since there was some, somebody that was effectively a general partner, uh, they classified those interests as uh, securities. And mm-hmm. so what we've done in the DAOs we support is try to shore up the smart contract uh, pieces. And then also uh, we've eliminated the general partner and we think have opened up um, uh, different ways to hopefully uh, argue what, that the interests themselves are not securities in our DAOs too. What would they be if not securities? Uh, they'd be partnership interests or more like commodities. Got it. So I have a partnership interest in it. It's not a security. What's the difference for the members in those two? I think the difference is, and this is what we're going to responsibly push towards, is that you can have uh, hopefully tradable interests in these DAOs. So instead of having all of your liquidity locked up, um, if there's some return, you can begin to have tradable uh, interests in these vehicles as well. And that could be great for valuation purposes or assessing valuation. It could be great for liquidity for folks. That so people could capital. sell their interest to each other. Like you could sell a mutual fund or the secondary market for venture capital funds, which doesn't happen all that often. Right. But instead on, you know, open liquid uh, blockchain based marketplaces. So instead of just private wow. uh, marketplaces, but uh, public marketplaces. So I think there's a lot of work that we need to do to get to that point. But that's the direction I think uh, we collectively would like to go. Okay, so um, something is going on in Wyoming. Uh, there was this American crypto fed DAO. Um, and maybe you could explain to us what's going on in Wyoming. Yeah, sure. So Wyoming, and I was uh, part of this process, they extended out the Wyoming LLC Act to recognize uh, a subcategory of LLCs called a DAO. Uh, what it did was flip some of the default rules when you set up an LLC just to make it easier to have these um, online groups uh, organize uh, uh, that are relying on smart contract or code-based systems. It looks like Wyoming weighed in uh, on a DAO that was formed and found the interest in some of those DAOs or potentially the interest in some of those DAOs to be securities. Uh, and that's not surprising, right? Just because you call yourself a DAO doesn't mean that the, the law magically evaporates. It's going to really be fact-specific and case-specific and structure-specific sure. uh, to know to kind of know what's going on there. What if um, the, the removal of the GP, uh, it's hard not for me to take personally <laughs> as a GP, but, uh, GPs do have value in the ecosystem. Is it possible to create a DAO? Because I'm having you on because I keep getting contacted for the past couple of years about creating a J coin, uh, Jason coin that would in some way track my angel investing or doing a DAO around the syndicate, et cetera, um, to give people access to investing in startups or the secondary market in startups, real world, private companies. Uh, and so I've been looking at it and toying with it. In that case, people would want my access to startups, which is a very hard thing to establish. Um, and obviously, for me to go do a DAO would mean taking away my revenue stream of the GP carry. So is it possible? It seems like it would be to create a DAO with a GP or a series of GPs who got carry if the members bought into that, and then it would create this ability to uh, have the maybe voting for other things like liquidations. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely do it. Uh, you yeah. can have a, a J coin. Uh, there's nothing really limiting that outside of whether or not the J coin itself would be uh, transferable or tradable. I think that mm-hmm. that's the real issue. When you have a general partner 
you know, the law is fairly clear, right? Uh, that person has access to information. That person, uh, you know, has access to capital and to prevent the general partner from hurting the LPs. Uh, you know, we have securities laws in place to do that. And that's yeah. entirely sensible. Um, so the question is, if you, ha- if you are actually still running the show, um, and still making those decisions, uh, it's hard for me to see at least how you could have a freely tradable, uh, JCoin without some sort of shift in, uh, the way that the securities laws are interpreted. Uh, mm. you know, I, I do think, you know, what is special about these DAOs is, is actually the elimination of that, uh, centralized group of general partners. I think you get a better flow of information. Uh, you're kind of combining lots of different networks of all the members together. They're able to, to kind of source and provide, um, you know, deal flow. They're able to collectively, uh, perform due diligence, which is important. Um, and I think they're actually able to provide a, a bunch of different perspectives to know that you may be making the right decision uh, mm. about something. So if you wanted to go in that direction, Jason, I'm, uh, <laughs> it was super fascinating. I just would, you, you would have to think about how to eliminate yourself in part from that mix, right? I think that yeah, that's I when mean, you'd really see the magic. Well, I, yes and no. Um, you know, I will say when I look at some equity crowdfunding where the wisdom of the crowd invest in companies, I've seen companies that the venture community passed on. Um, because they have more experience and they were able to vet those, but then the crowd uh, invested in them. When we look at SPACs, you might have the crowd get very excited about a Nikola, but anybody in Silicon Valley who had domain expertise wouldn't have done it. So if you, in fact, have the wisdom of the crowd with people who are smart and have domain expertise, which you clearly do in Flamingo uh, and in the Lao, yes, it makes sense. In general startup investing, sometimes people think, well, Nikola looks like it sounds like Tesla, so therefore I'll invest in it. So you know, it's, it really is an interesting question. I'm fascinated by the entire concept, um, especially on a global basis. And I think there are some functions that the audience uh, could do, like I do think diligence, we in our syndicate, will often have people as but one example, we had, uh, you know, people who are doctors, MDs, and we had a medical investment. And they were able to give us feedback on that. We had people who worked at Disney and a company that was a SaaS company targeting movie studios like Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar. And so, wow, that was an incredible, uh, you know, confluence of, uh, you know, diligence and being able to sell into those companies. So we do see that. Um, it's just on a micro scale. Um, what, what legal changes or clarity do you need to see or do you wish that you had from the SEC or other organizations to make this grow faster and more fluidly and, you know, let's face it, democratize a bit of, uh, you know, getting into alternative investing? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think this question um, as to what the boundaries will be for interest in DAOs is something that we need additional clarity with. Um, my sense is that... Explain what that cl- means for somebody who's unaware. Yeah. yeah, so the question is, if you have an interest in a DAO, what is it? Is it a security or is it something else? So the whole point of securities laws is to address information asymmetries. Somebody is... Um, you're providing money to somebody that's in charge, um, and that person is in charge to build a company or a project. That person's in charge because they want to, you know, uh, generate a return for you. And so reasonably, at least in the U.S., many other parts of the globe, we say, hey, you should uh, uh, provide disclosures. You should be a, a public in some sort of way. Or, hey, this is too risky for everyday retail folks to be a part of it. Um, I don't uh, necessarily personally agree with all the, the boundaries on on the limitations here. And I know the SEC is actively working to kind of expand that, but it, I don't think they've expanded it fast enough, at least in my opinion. The accreditation uh, here, law you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
but here, you know, you're you potentially with DAOs have different a different scenario. Everything is transparent. You have equal access to that information. You can walk away with your money at any point in time. Hmm. Um, you have the ability to participate in decision making at your choice. Um, and on sounds top of like that, more of a partnership. Exactly. So if if it looks more like a partnership, uh, then why should we have this um, important but sometimes uh, overly complex regulatory apparatus of the securities uh, industry applied to it? And I think when you do that, you get a couple benefits, right? One is you can begin to see broader groups of folks that are putting in their own capital in order to make investment decisions. They're in charge of it. Uh, with the smart contract-based systems, you know that they're unlikely to to have that robbed from them because you can put in those controls. And then beyond that, I think it solves some problems that we see for venture capital funds or other forms of funds, which is just not gaining access to uh, or the ability to actually have liquidity on those positions as well, right? So instead of just having paper gains in a venture capital fund, you could actually have tradable interest in that, in that something that looks like a venture capital fund. Maybe that would solve some of the late stage uh, valuation problems that we've seen with project, you know, with companies like WeWork and others, right? Where in later yeah. stages of venture, you start to see that the valuations kind of decouple from what the public markets would support. Because yeah. even venture capitalists get exuberant, right? Um, well, I mean, we, for deals. you're racing for deals. And then also, there is a bit of a dance that occurs, you know, you have to submit to an audit. And then the auditors will look, you might have a company that's done phenomenal. Um, and they just haven't raised money in three years. Uh, their valuation three years ago was 10% of what it is now. Now the secondary market is trading it, but auditors might say, you know what, we don't want to rely on the secondary price of those shares in Uber or DoorDash or whatever private company Coinbase. So we're going to go with that old one. So now the fund looks like it's underperforming, then the company goes public, and then you get this huge jump and you're like, oh, okay. So if venture funds could be traded in real time, uh, you would have a bunch of people maybe getting nervous during the portion of the J curve where you basically have invested the dollars and there's no return. It's maybe even gone down because you had company shut down. Then as companies emerge as winners, you would get, um, you know, some reward and you'd then be able to trade at a higher price your partnership value. And it, it has come up, you know, I do, I, I have been approached previously uh, by people, Aaron, who have said, hey, this venture fund is shutting down or, you know, winding down, would you like to buy an interest in it? Here's what they hold. Here's the par value of those shares. Here's what this LP is offering it at. And you have to wonder, like, if you're an LP, you're an accredited investor, why do you want to get out of this? You know, uh, it could be like a life event. But generally, if it's a, you know, a major LP, why would they do that? Um, yeah. What does yeah, it cost I, to sell one know, of these? Oh, God, answer the question. Then. Yeah, I, no, just I, I think what's I think what's interesting there is, um, you know, many ways you have either an expert, if it's a GP LP structure, right, um, that has been presumably doing their diligence. Um, or you have kind of this collective group that may be larger that's able, it seems like to make comparable, if not better decisions, you know, consumers are, uh, are less likely to get hurt in those scenarios. There's obviously always the possibility for a fraud or a bad actor. But in general, you would think that this should be a reasonably safe uh, bet if somebody wants to deploy capital or their own investment on the retail side. Um, so I, I, I do think that this is an area that's that's uh, a sub uh, context for DAOs is how do we have vehicles that actually have tradable interest to solve some of the problems that we've seen in venture in hedge funds, you know, in other kind of fund like structures. Um, and I, I think that's, a, that's important. Um, and, and what we're what we're pressing towards really is how do we evolve something that's actually better than the, the traditional GP LP structure that we have in venture? How do we produce something that can actually have an, a better return than what we've seen um, in 
some of the amazing funds or fund-like structures that we've, we've seen over the past 20 years. And the early evidence is we, we're kind of there, you know, like the well, this collective I mean, decision. You're, you're also, your evidence is in the craziest boom in any equity since Tulip. So, and, and dot-com stocks. So I would uh, wait till the tide goes out and then see exactly what you've proven. It would be my best advice. <laughs> that would be like me, you know, judging myself just on the Uber or Robinhood investment. Like, it's been a hell of a run for crypto the last 18 months. Um, how much does it cost to set up a DAO today? Uh, if I wanted to set one up with you, is it 100000 Is it a million dollars? Is there a setup fee? I, we have the 2% fee per year. Um, or do you just do them when you want to do them? Yeah, so we actually do it. The, the members of our existing DAOs uh, decide what future DAOs we set up. So it's much more cool. like a curated network. Um, what we, yeah, we think that makes sense just so... Uh, we actually have like a pretty strong signal that this is the right opportunity. This is like the right area to focus our, res- our resources. Um, we're not uh, as convinced that an open platform will work as well. Again, we're aspiring to to kind of have, you know, the top uh, performing uh, kind of vehicles that are out there, not just, you know, another open platform like AngelList, which is amazing. Obviously, well, even AngelList yeah. was uh, by invitation for turning on people's syndicates in the beginning. So they may have opened up right. a little bit later. But yes, you definitely want to curate this a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So but, but in terms of the raw costs, I mean, the co- we've automated all the legal setup. So that costs us nothing outside of the filing fees. Yeah. Uh, the major cost is just deploying the smart contracts. That's usually about three, four hundred, five hundred dollars depending on uh, the price super of easy. Ether at any point in time. Yeah. So it's it's super streamlined. And that I think is pretty amazing. Joining the DAOs once it's set up and you've gone through compliance, it's just a couple clicks. All the paperwork gets automatically generated. We opened up a Metaverse DAO. Um, I think that was last week. Uh, so it's mm. about a $20 million vehicle. It took 40 minutes from end to end to open and close. So you can pull capital incredibly fast on, in crypto. And uh, it's a pretty good use case for it. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And, and, but there's a minimum to join most of these. What is a the general minimum to get in on these? Yeah, it's usually about 60 ETH. Uh, so at current pricing, that's about $300,000. Got it. Yeah. So that would be like being uh, an L- in an LP in a venture fund, which typically starts at 250 or 500k is the minimum check. So amazing. Uh, well, this has been a great conversation. You are the most qualified person I've had on discussing DAOs. Uh, it is still early days. Uh, but thank you so much for for sharing so much with us. Uh, I know Kevin Rose is part of the Flamingo DAO. He's talked about it a bit on his program uh, and continued success. I, I'm I'm really fascinated by the space. And just on the on the issue of accredited investors, I think we both share, um, you know, that this should be uh, more equitable, and more democratized and more fair, because you have all these amazing ways to um, own equity in high performing assets, and we're limiting it uh, to people who are doing offshore betting or on offshore accounts and, you know, buying crypto, but really, it should be like licensing, uh, you can drive an experiment, you could drive a motorcycle, you can fly experimental planes and you can buy guns all with a license. But private company stock is not available to be purchased by a license or participating in these kind of DAOs. Why not create a licensing and a certification? So, so easy. Right now you're Ethereum based. What about Solana? You've been thinking about that and all the hype around Solana? Um, so we definitely are not uh, wedded to any one blockchain. Um, the underlying smart contract based systems are written uh, for Ethereum. Uh, mm-hmm. So if we wanted to do something on another chain, we'd have to kind of rewrite it and go through a ah. similar security related um, review. You know, there's efforts on Solana to make it uh, compatible with Ethereum. They say that's like e- EVM compatible. 
it's still early days there. I think with a lot of the the new layer ones or layer twos, depending on how you're kind of classifying it, uh, it's a little unclear if the hype is getting ahead of the you know technical achievements. So. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty clear it is. I mean, there's eight people working on something. No dick to Solana. It just there's eight people working on it yeah, full time, so. right? Like, I mean, these things are going to take time, and uh, we have a lot of people who want to place bets, uh, and many more people placing bets than building, and that's you know. Yeah. So, you know, and for us, th- there are people building on Ethereum. That's where the core innovation is. That's where the developer ecosystem is. That's where we're seeing the most interesting things. So we're dedicating our time there. But, you know, if another blockchain based ecosystem uh, wants to go in that direction, we'd, we'd obviously be open to exploring that. Yeah, obviously, it's, it's like asking you if you were on, you know, Google's cloud or Azure or AWS, if you wanted to try the next one coming out, and it's like, well, of course, I'll try another one. We're, you're indifferent. It's uh, if there's another platform that works better, cheaper, faster. You would embrace it, of course. I mean, that, that yeah, is exactly. part of the promise of this as we wrap here is that these things are going to be able to be set up and up and running globally. And if you're doing $70 million ones today, $20 million ones today in 40 minutes, it's possible a $10 billion DAO to, you know, cure, uh, to, to get rid of, uh, you know, some global crisis, we didn't even talk about DAOs for nonprofits or saving the rainforest. But many things could be created if you said, Hey, we're going to create a DAO to buy, uh, you know, uh, land and make it um, not, uh, not developed, just to preserve wetlands or Amazon or, or, you know, middle of America, whatever, you could might be able to set that up. And if it catches fire, all of a sudden, you've got $10 billion to buy you know, uh, land in the world, and everybody just votes on it in the DAO. I mean, the possibilities here are truly inspiring. Yeah, completely, you know, and those are the types of DAOs that I think you'll start to see coming from our network. Um, We've been thinking about, you know, land based DAO, there's other projects that are doing that too. Uh, You know, tying it once you tie kind of the internet to uh, a legal entity, Mm -hmm. uh, it really opens up a a lot of uh, potential. And I think that that's the headline, right? The headline is we're moving beyond an era where people get together just to chat with one another or post or get to know each other via social media. But now we're arming them with a bank account where they can take collective action. And that's really encouraging. If you believe this thesis that most people are generally good people, and that's just something I believe, and you enable them to work together, provide them the tools to do that, uh, then you can start to see the internet not just be used um, you know, for conversation, but actually for collective action. And that could be to make a profit. Um, if it's focused on investments, that could be to to help with all these charitable causes like you were describing before. Yeah, make impact. Yeah. Yeah, and make an impact. But that's great, right? If we if we can imagine this world where there's, you know, people from around the globe that are passionate about a topic that can now make an impact together. I mean, that that is um I think the one of the fully expressed versions of of what I think many of us have wanted for the internet from the beginning. Uh amazing. Thanks, Aaron Wright, for coming on the program. You can follow Aaron on the Twitter AWR igho1 and uh, you can visit openlaw.io you can visit flamingodao.xyz uh, or the lao lao.io and uh, i don't know do you have a new uh distribute labs have a domain name now yeah uh you can check out tributedao.com to see a dao framework and the rebrand is coming in the next couple weeks oh fantastic all right thanks so much for coming on the program we'll see you all next time bye bye <laughs>